0: This just happened a couple of hours ago. I'm still pretty shaken up and wanted to post the story here in case someone can think of a rational explanation. A little bit of background. I left my childhood home a couple of years ago and moved out of state for work. I visit every few months, and I just arrived back in town for one of those visits today. I have a good relationship with my parents, and it's always great to see them in person again. It's also always great to see Judy, the little gray schnauzer I grew up with. She's about 17 now, but she's still pretty spry and energetic, always racing around my parents' little dirt backyard and barking up a storm at the slightest provocation. Anyway, after I arrived, we ordered pizza and talked over the dinner table about my career, my dad's retirement plans, sports, politics, and all that stuff. I didn't notice anything wrong then. Nothing seemed awry. My parents were chatting away. Judy was sitting patiently on the floor by my chair watching me intently and wagging her tail every time I brought a slice of pizza to my mouth. Everything was fine. Then, as we were finishing up, I heard a bark from outside. It sounded like Judy, so I instinctively glanced over at the screen door leading to the backyard, and to my utter shock, I saw a small gray dog, the spitting image of Judy strolling across the dirt. The sun had begun to set, but I could still see the dog very clearly in the twilight and under any other circumstances, I would have been certain it was Judy. The mystery dog had the same comically large mustache and much smaller beard, the same unusually short legs for the breed, the same long streaks of white fur, even the same asymmetrical ears, with one drooping noticeably more than the other. I saw it for probably a full 10 seconds before it ambled out of view, and I was sure it was not some other miniature schnauzer. It was my dog, my family's dog, It was Judy. But that was impossible, because Judy was still sitting right beside me, waiting patiently for scraps. I looked at my parents, ready to make a baffled quip about what I'd seen, but the words died in my mouth when I saw that all the color had drained from their faces. They were so pale that for a split second, I almost thought they were both having some sort of medical crisis. That's where my mind automatically went anyway. I ended up stammering something to the effect of, uh... Did you guys see that? My dad leaned forward very stiffly and explained to me in a hushed, grave tone that this had been happening for months. They had been seeing and hearing this doppelganger dog in their backyard since a few weeks after my last visit. They had been staying inside at night and had even, they said, gone so far as to buy Judy a litter box so they didn't have to let her out at night before they went to bed, although I'm not sure how adept she is at using it. Sometimes it came several nights a week. Sometimes it stayed away so long that they were nearly able to put it out of their minds. Occasionally it would scratch at the door and whine to be let in, and my parents would lock themselves in another room and hold Judy, the real Judy, tightly, until the sound stopped. Whenever they had managed to muster the courage to step outside and look for it, it was nowhere to be found, and the backyard of that house is not large. It doesn't have any places for a dog to hide, nor is there any way a small dog could get into or out of it. At least not that I or my parents can think of. The story certainly sent a chill down my spine, but I couldn't quite figure out why my parents were apparently living in so much fear of a tiny dog. Sure it looked a lot like Judy, and the resemblance had spooked me too when I saw it, but were they absolutely sure it wasn't some other mini schnauzer that somehow kept managing to break into their yard? Maybe I was just trying to rationalize the situation away, because deep down I knew what I had seen. But wasn't it possible it was owned by one of their neighbors? Why didn't they dash outside as soon as they saw it and try to catch it? My dad looked at me, and I could tell he was struggling hard with whether or not he should speak his mind. After a moment he did, and I remember the exact words he said. Something about it just isn't right, he said. It's not a dog. Sometimes when it looks at you, it smiles, and not like a dog would. Before I could fully digest that statement, or ask for more details, I heard another bark. This time, it sounded like it was coming from the front yard. I glanced down at Judy. She didn't appear to have registered the noise, but she's gone a bit deaf in her old age, so that wasn't surprising. My parents and I definitely registered it, though, and I decided to seize the opportunity to go investigate. As I stood and walked to the front door, my parents begged me not to go outside. They said they thought it was dangerous, whatever it was and they said they'd never heard it from the front yard before. The fear in their voices nearly stopped me, but I carried on, determined to get to the bottom of things. They were being absurd, I told myself. Surely this was indeed just some other dog who happened to look similar to Judy, not, whatever evil entity they had apparently scared themselves into believing it was. So I told them I would be right back and not to worry, and then I opened the door and slipped out into the night, trying to ignore my own trepidation. The warm summer air felt heavy around me. I remember thinking it was like I was suddenly walking with a blanket draped over my whole body. I gently closed the door behind me and walked down the driveway. A faint orange glow, an echo of sunset, still lingered in the sky, giving me a reasonable amount of light as I slowly moved toward the street. I didn't see anything strange or hear any more barking as I scanned the area. I didn't hear much of anything, in fact. It was very quiet out there and the air was totally still. I came to a stop in the middle of the road, and after a few moments of standing there among the growing darkness, I admit that I began to feel very, very creeped out. I walked up and down the street a few times, looking for a flash of gray and straining to hear that familiar bark. But after finding nothing, I headed back to the house. The door was locked, which I initially chalked up to more paranoia on my parents' part. I knocked, and after a few moments the door swung open. If I'd thought my parents were terrified before, that was nothing compared to the expressions of absolute horror on their faces now. It was as though I'd reappeared on their doorstep a day after they'd watched me die in front of them. What the hell are you doing back out there? My mom hissed through clenched teeth. I was completely bemused and asked what she meant, the implications of the question's wording not yet dawning on me. My dad peered apprehensively into the darkness behind me, and my mom started asking me questions about my childhood. What I'd gotten from Santa alongside my rocking horse when I was five years old. What school I'd gone to in seventh grade. What my best friend's name was in high school. I answered them all, growing increasingly alarmed and confused. And then finally she grabbed my arm and pulled me inside. My dad slammed the door shut behind me and locked it, and they told me what had happened. According to them, I had already come back inside about two minutes ago. They said I had been acting a little odd, somewhat sullen and not very talkative, and had headed upstairs to my old room to make a call. They'd assumed I had gotten scared, maybe seen something I didn't want to talk about, and needed some time to myself. But now, two minutes later, here I was again. We all just stared at each other for a moment, and I could feel the panic growing between the three of us. Then my mom said she wanted to call the police, and my dad said he'd get his gun. I made some lame remark about how he'd better not shoot me. He quipped, depends which you is really you. But his gun was upstairs, and we'd have to pass my room to get to it anyway. So we decided to just go up there together and face whatever might be waiting for us in my room. We grabbed some knives from the kitchen, along with a fireplace poker, and up we went. By that point, I half expected to see an exact duplicate of myself staring at me when we rounded the corner into my room, but there was no one there. I immediately noticed and pointed out that the window was slightly ajar. I was sure I hadn't opened it when I'd gone up there earlier to drop off my luggage, and my parents were adamant that they hadn't touched it either. I firmly latched it and drew the curtains over it, and then we searched all the rooms upstairs, checking under beds and inside closets, leaving no stone unturned. There were no signs of an intruder, other than that slightly open window, which none of us could shake off. At one point, my dad started to ask me a question that I think would have gone something like, you didn't climb out the window and go back to the front door, did you? But he clearly thought better of it, and stopped. I don't blame him for wanting to ask, but I know I didn't do that, and I know they know I didn't do that. When we were done, we headed back downstairs and sat on the couch, all of us deep in thought. A minute or so later, we heard barking coming from the backyard again. My dad covered his eyes for a moment, obviously exhausted by the whole ordeal, and I think that's when I decided that I had to get to the bottom of this for his and my mom's sake. And while we were sitting there, Judy, whose absence I hadn't even noticed during our search of the house, darted out from under the dinner table. Her stronger ear stood at attention as she cocked her head and wagged her tail, gazing at us with evident curiosity. My parents' stories and my dad's stupid line about the imposter dog not being right must have been getting to me, because at that moment, I could have almost sworn she was smiling. So that's what happened. My parents have gone to bed, although I doubt they're asleep. I haven't heard any more barking, but it's only been a couple of hours. I'm sitting here on my bed with the lights on, looking for answers online, and trying to stop thinking about that window, which is currently about five feet away from me. Do you guys have any idea what could be causing this? I did already tell my parents to buy a carbon monoxide detector and have the house inspected, but I'm not sure carbon monoxide could cause collective hallucinations like this. I don't really believe in the supernatural, so I want to exhaust all other possibilities before I conclude it must be that. But either way, I don't want my parents to keep living under siege from some unknown terror, and I certainly don't want things to escalate even further than they did today any help would be much appreciated. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa saga Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices A good thing about stepping into the new, I've always figured, is the blank canvas it presents. Like starting a new painting, or cracking open a fresh book. The tang of possibility mingles with a dash of trepidation, both equally seductive. But this, this was something different. On my first day, I found myself standing on the edge of a dense forest, my eyes tracing the sturdy outline of a watchtower looming above the canopy. She was a wooden structure older than sin, perched proudly atop a hundred foot elevation. I liked her at once. My name is the only one that matters in this story, and that's because I'm the one telling it. The solitary job of a fire watcher like me doesn't leave much room for companionship unless you're counting the birds or the occasional squirrel. I'd been transferred up to the northwest, where nature tended to get a little reckless. I was excited and apprehensive. This wasn't my first time at the rodeo, but it was my first time in this particular ring. Entering the cabin I found it surprisingly well furnished, an old bunk bed, a small kitchen, a swivel chair, and most importantly, a panoramic view of an endless sea of green. But what caught my eye was an old worn journal sitting on the desk, its cover yellowed and pages slightly curled at the edges. Curiosity is a funny thing. It pulls you towards the unknown, even if that unknown might scare the living daylights out of you. I picked up the journal, noting the faded handwriting on the first page. The journal entries began in the year 1989, penned by someone named Teddy. It appeared that he was stationed here along with two others, Clark and a fellow by the name of Thomas. I started reading, losing myself in the echoes of the past. Teddy's words painted a vivid picture. I could see them. Three souls stranded together in the wilderness, the excitement of the first few days eventually giving way to monotony, and then to fear. Fear, after all, tends to creep in when we least expect it. There was something strangely captivating about reading another man's thoughts, especially when they were written in isolation, in the midst of dense woods. Teddy's writing was frank, bare, and laced with an undercurrent of something that felt ominously like dread. Just as I was deeply engrossed in Teddy's entries, a sound jerked me back to the present. Two men appeared at the entrance of the tower. They introduced themselves as Gary and Harold, my new companions for the next 180 days. The two men had the weary eyes of those who'd been living off civilization's grid longer than they'd care to admit. I found myself studying them, thinking about the journal in my hands. There were many questions swimming around in my mind, but for the moment they remained unspoken. I kept my newfound discovery to myself. After all, we were just getting to know each other, no need to start off on an eerie note. As I laid down the journal, ready to make my introductions, a strange realization washed over me. I could remember my name, I could remember the basics of my job, I could remember the loneliness that led me to it. But for the life of me, I couldn't remember how I got here. In the dimming twilight, With the whispers of Teddy's entries echoing in my head, that thought felt more than a little unsettling. Days slipped by with a deceptive calmness. Each dawn, I found myself drawn to Teddy's journal. It was like piecing together a puzzle, one word at a time, with the picture growing clearer and more foreboding. The journal entries were honest and unfiltered, a visceral snapshot of the previous occupant's experiences. It was eerie, like stepping into a time warp, I could feel their excitement, their uncertainties, their fears. Their words echoed around the empty cabin, a haunting reminder of what had come before. It was an intimate peek into someone else's life, a window into their soul, and it was becoming my daily ritual. One entry was particularly chilling. Teddy wrote about a day, day 179, when they were supposed to be picked up by a helicopter, the same day their main radio went out. That entry ended with an unsettling detail— They never left the station, the helicopter never came, Clark, Teddy, and Thomas, stranded. Teddy had written about a sense of being left behind, a palpable fear that started to gnaw at them. The entries were not just a record of what they saw outside, but also what they felt inside. The fear, the confusion, the dread, all spilled onto those yellowed pages. And then there were those entries about Clark's strange behavior. Clark was convinced that something was off about Thomas. Teddy had written about how he would find Clark wide awake at night, eyes darting around, as if expecting something sinister to unfold. The more I read, the more I found myself sinking into their world. The isolation, the uncertainty, the growing fear, the inexplicable changes in Thomas...it was all getting under my skin. The journal was more than just a record of the past. It was a stark reminder of what could go wrong in such an isolated place. Then there were the strange details that didn't quite add up. Teddy talked about a smoke sighting. It was the second time in 185 days, and the first since their radio had died. And Thomas, well, Thomas disappeared. His disappearance, coinciding with the vanishing of the smoke, felt like more than a mere coincidence. Gary and Harold were oblivious to the past of this watchtower. They went about their routine, their chatter punctuating the silence. I was part of their world, but also, increasingly, part of Teddy's. One thing weighed heavy on my mind. Teddy and Clark didn't remember how they ended up here. And if I was being honest with myself, neither did I. We shared the same job, the same cabin, the same towering trees around us. Now it seemed, we shared the same black hole in our memories. In the quiet solitude of the cabin, overlooking the vast indifferent wilderness, I found myself on edge. The silence seemed to whisper Teddy's words back to me. I didn't know if it was the isolation or the strange revelations from the journal, but I could feel a chill settling in. It wasn't just the biting cold of the northwestern winds. It was a sense of something more sinister, something waiting in the silence, just out of sight. It was a clear morning, the sun bright and unforgiving. I sat by the window looking out over the endless expanse of the forest the trees dancing under the playful breeze. The view should have been soothing, the wilderness in its untouched glory. But I couldn't shake off the chill, the strange fear that Teddy's journal had stirred in me. Taking a sip of my lukewarm coffee, I picked up the journal again. It was a window into the past, into a world that was becoming alarmingly familiar. Each word was etched into my mind, echoing in the quiet of the cabin, disturbing the veneer of calm. The pages were marked with the passage of time, and yet, they felt so immediate, so now, and they were taking a toll on me. The isolation, the strange occurrences, the inexplicable changes in Thomas, the miscalculated days, the missing helicopter, all of it was unsettling. And then there was the smoke, the smoke that led to Thomas's disappearance. Teddy's final entries painted a picture of dread. Thomas was missing and they didn't have a choice but to venture out into the wilderness, the same wilderness that surrounded me now. Taking a deep breath, I tried to steady myself. This was just a journal, just words on a page, but they felt so much more. They were a grim reminder of how quickly things could go wrong out here, of how isolating this place could be. Gary and Harold were blissfully unaware of the weight of the past, cheerfully chatting over breakfast. Their laughter rang hollow in my ears, a stark contrast to the chilling words in front of me. Should I tell them? But what would I say? How do I explain this creeping fear, this growing sense of unease? And then there was the black hole in my memory. Teddy and Clark couldn't remember how they ended up here, and neither could I. It was like waking up from a dream, disoriented and confused. Dropping the journal, I went to the window again. The forest stretched out before me, silent and still, In the bright morning sun, it seemed harmless, just trees swaying under the gentle wind. But I knew better. The journal had told me so. Turning back to the room, I found my gaze falling on the stairs leading to the watchtower, the same stairs Clark talked about, where Thomas used to stand and watch them. The thought sent a chill down my spine. Deciding to shake off the unsettling thoughts, I decided to explore. If this was my reality for the next few months, I better get used to it. I told Gary and Harold I was taking a walk, avoiding their curious glances. Stepping out into the open, the crisp air filled my lungs. The wilderness loomed large, its towering trees casting long shadows. My heart pounded in my chest as I ventured deeper. I could almost hear the whispering woods, their silent stories echoing in the wind. I knew I was walking the same path that Thomas had taken, his fate sealed somewhere out here. But I had no other choice, because whatever was out here, Whatever secrets this forest held, they held the key to our past, and maybe, just maybe, they could help me understand why I couldn't remember how I got here. As days passed, my mind became a battleground of fear and reason, with the forest acting as a constant, silent spectator. Gary and Harold continued their daily routines, unaware of the anxiety gnawing at my heart. Yet the shadows of Teddy's journal never left my side, turning the cabin into a tomb of unknown secrets. Thomas's disappearance had haunted Teddy and Clark, and now his nameless fate seemed to linger in the silence, weaving into the undercurrent of my own solitude. A thought began to nag at me. What if Thomas had found something? Something that he didn't want to share, something that led to his disappearance. The more I dwelt on it, the more plausible it became. With a newfound purpose, I decided to revisit the path Thomas took on the day he vanished. It was a risk, but it was one I was willing to take. I traced the route from the watchtower to the edge of the forest, my heart pounding in my chest. The forest was an enigma, a serene beauty masking its dark underbelly. It felt as if I was walking into the mouth of a monster. Every rustle of leaves and creaking branches sent icy chills down my spine. But the thought of uncovering something, anything, kept me going. After hours of walking, I found myself standing in front of an old tree with peculiar markings. They looked deliberate, man-made. I thought back to Teddy's journal. There was no mention of this, yet it felt significant. Reaching out, I traced the markings with my fingers. The rough texture told stories of harsh weather and a relentless struggle for survival, but these etchings were different, they felt, intentional. This tree had been marked, but why, and by who? I spent the rest of the day exploring the surroundings, but the only revelation was the marked tree. As nightfall approached, I headed back, The tree's image ingrained in my mind. Back at the cabin, I struggled with my discovery. Did Thomas mark the tree? Was it a sign, an SOS perhaps? The questions swirled in my head, but answers were scarce. I couldn't share my find with Gary and Harold, not yet. They were already suspicious of my prolonged excursions. That night, sleep evaded me. My mind was abuzz with thoughts of the marked tree and what it could mean. My thoughts drifted back to Thomas. He was a constant enigma an enigma that seemed to grow bigger with each passing day. But one thing was certain. He knew more than he let on. I had a mission now, to uncover the secrets Thomas left behind. The marked tree was my starting point. I knew I had to return, to dig deeper. The forest held answers, answers that I needed to unearth, answers that might explain the unsettling gap in my memory, and perhaps even Thomas's fate. As I lay in the darkness... I couldn't help but glance at the staircase leading to the watchtower, a reminder of the unease we shared with our predecessors. A harsh truth lingered in the silence, a truth that made my blood run cold. I was caught in the same trap as Teddy and Clark, isolated in this wilderness, surrounded by secrets. I couldn't escape this place or its past. It was my reality, and I had to face it. A week had passed since my discovery of the marked tree, Its existence had brought new urgency to our purpose here in the Watchtower, but I hadn't shared anything about it with Gary and Harold. Not yet. I needed more proof, more tangible evidence. I needed to find something solid, something that would expose the forgotten pages of our shared past. In the following days, I roamed the woods for hours, each day venturing farther than the last. Each step took me deeper into the forest's labyrinthine heart. The tree, with its peculiar markings, became my anchor. Its presence, strange as it was, gave me hope. On one of these expeditions, I stumbled upon something that made my heart race. A small clearing hidden in the depths of the forest, obscured by thorny undergrowth. At the center, I found a charred patch of earth. Someone had made a fire here, and not long ago. I knelt, sifting through the ashes, and found a small piece of metal, twisted and burnt, a buckle of some sort. It had to be Thomas's. It had to be a clue. My heart pounded as I pocketed the buckle and made my way back to the watchtower, my mind spinning with possibilities. But as I approached the tower, I saw something that sent a shiver down my spine. A figure standing near the base of the tower, looking up, just as Clark had described Thomas doing in Teddy's journal. I approached, stepping lightly on the fallen leaves. As I got closer, I saw it was Harold. He stood unmoving, staring at the tower, his face unreadable in the pale moonlight. I called out to him, but he didn't respond. A cold sense of dread swept over me as I remembered Clark's words. He comes up the stairs, and, and just looks at us, stares at us. What if Harold was doing the same thing now? Was he too being consumed by the same madness that had plagued Thomas? Shaken, I retreated back to the forest, deciding to spend the night in the clearing. Alone in the dark, my mind raced. I replayed every interaction with Harold, looking for signs of his unraveling. But there were none. Harold was just... Harold. Quiet and introverted, but surely no more susceptible to the forest's haunting grip than I was. By morning, the terrifying image of Harold staring at the tower had somewhat faded, replaced by a newfound determination to uncover the truth. I returned to the watchtower where Harold was making breakfast, his demeanor entirely normal. Neither Harold nor Gary seemed aware of my midnight discovery. I didn't share it with them. This was my battle, my secret to uncover. The charred patch, the buckle, Harold's strange behavior. They were all pieces of a puzzle that I needed to solve. As I watched the endless expanse of forest from the watchtower, I realized the truth was out there, somewhere in the shadows and I was determined to find it, to make sense of the memories we'd lost and the bizarre circumstances we found ourselves in. The forest was holding us captive, but I was not going to be its victim. I was ready to fight back. The days blurred together and I lost track of time, each morning seemingly indistinguishable from the last. The forest was a sea of emerald shadows, whispering secrets I strained to understand. My dreams were filled with the sound of Thomas's laughter, his voice echoing through the corridors of my memory. I searched for more signs of him, more clues to understand what had happened to us. The watchtower had become a prison, and the marked tree and clearing my only solace. The buckle, now warm from being kept close to my body, was a constant reminder of my mission. One night, as the moon painted silver streaks across the forest, I noticed a faint glow coming from the clearing The thought of another fire, possibly lit by Thomas, spurred me into action. I sprinted, my heart hammering against my ribs. Arriving at the clearing, I froze. The glow came from a circle of stones arranged around a figure seated in the middle, silhouetted against the flickering flames of a small fire. It was Harold. His face was illuminated by the fire, his eyes wild and hollow. He turned to me, and a guttural scream erupted from his throat, reverberating through the forest. It was a sound that had been torn from the deepest, darkest corners of his soul. It was a sound of pure, unfiltered terror. "'I see him,' he cried out, pointing towards the marked tree. "'Thomas, he's here!' But I saw nothing. No specter in the shadows, no hidden figure in the undergrowth. Just the eerie quiet of the forest and the marked tree standing sentinel. I tried to calm him, but he wouldn't listen. His screams turned into choked sobs. He was lost.' lost to the madness that had claimed Thomas, the same madness that was now threatening to consume us all. Thomas is here, he repeated in a broken whisper, his eyes fixed on the empty space by the marked tree. The horror etched on his face was a mirror of my own internal dread. I wanted to reach out, to offer comfort, but fear rooted me to the spot. I watched helplessly as Harold's sanity crumbled, taken by the forest and its haunting past. I was alone. Gary was gone. Harold had succumbed, and I was next. A chilling wind swept through the clearing, rustling the leaves and fanning the flames. And then, in the eerie silence that followed, I heard it. A whispering echo, a voice that sounded hauntingly familiar. Thomas's voice. Can't you see me? The voice asked. It was soft, almost friendly, but the chilling undertone sent a shiver down my spine. Looking around, I saw no one, I was alone, save for the whimpering herald. Yet Thomas's voice hung in the air, a horrifying reminder of our forgotten past, and a chilling harbinger of our impending doom. It was then that I realized we were not just victims of our shattered memories, but also prisoners of a past that refused to stay buried, a past that echoed Thomas's haunting voice, a past that was ready to claim us all. The twilight hour had thrown its blanket across the earth when I began to take stock of my circumstances. I was nestled in a cottage, halfway between Providence and New London, guarded by gnarled red pines, standing tall and ageless. These were ancient sentinels, their bark etched with the stories of bygone eras. The air beneath their mighty boughs smelled of old life, a fragrance steeped in ages past. A man I knew well, a man of earthy wisdom. Once told me this land had been a farm, and before that, a paleolithic hunting camp. He'd spun tales of archaic flakes and tools they'd found, each leading like breadcrumbs toward the bog behind my cottage. A bog is a queer place, you know, part land, part water, part history, part mystery. It's a doorway to a world we've forgotten, but it hasn't forgotten us. On that night, the last rays of sun surrendering to the moon's rain, My cottage was a beacon amidst the growing darkness. As I lay in bed, the flickering light from the bedside candle lent a shadow puppet theater to the ceiling. I found myself tracing those dancing patterns, my mind latching on to the mundane to douse the noise of the day. The night's lullaby was a symphony of familiar sounds, the slight wobble of the ceiling fan as it spun in lazy circles overhead, the distant hum of the refrigerator cycling through its own rhythm a few rooms away. It was home, you see, and home is where the heart finds comfort, and comfort finds the heart. I was on the edge of surrendering to the song of the night, to the soft caress of sleep, when something else intervened. It was a sound, alien to the domestic orchestra, a rustle, the noise of disruption, the noise of discordance. It didn't belong. It came from the outside, from the darkness that lay beyond my window, beyond the comforting light of my home. The sound wasn't subtle. There was an assertiveness about it a disturbing quality that seemed too large too formidable to be just an animal foraging for dinner the rhythm was all wrong too not quadrupedal as one would expect from a deer or a fox but seemingly bipedal there was something deeply unsettling about the cadence thump drag thump drag as if a man were trying to walk on feet he didn't quite own each noise seemed to draw nearer invading the invisible boundary between my sanctuary and the world of the wild. It was as if an ancient pact were being broken, a line of respect being crossed. My heart drummed in my chest, matching the strange beat of the night intruder. It was then that I understood, this was no ordinary night, and that out there, beyond my window, there lurked no ordinary creature. Drenched in a cold sweat, my nerves raw, I willed myself to confront whatever lurked in the pitch black unknown. I wasn't just the owner of the cottage anymore, I was its guardian. Like those silent red pines outside, I would stand against this uncanny menace, whatever it might be. There's a bravery in humans, I think, that sometimes doesn't know how to calculate odds. Fueled by adrenaline and an absurd sense of property rights, I reached for the flashlight on the bed table. It was one of those heavy metallic ones that felt real and solid in your hand, like it could double as a weapon if need be. It wasn't just a flashlight anymore. It was my Excalibur, my means of cutting through the darkness. As I fumbled to grip it, my hands betrayed my fear with an unforgiving tremor. My breath stuttered in my chest, a trebling exhale that whistled through my clenched teeth and flickered the bedside candle to the point of near extinction. On padded feet I crept towards the window, the flashlight an extension of my will. Each step was a negotiation between the rational part of my mind, the one that said there was a perfectly reasonable explanation and the primal part, which kept insisting there was a monster outside. With each crunch and scrape, the creature's movements painted a grotesque picture in my mind's canvas, a picture born of fear and shadows. The rustling in the leaves and the heavy strides only confirmed the dreadful narrative. This wasn't a stray dog lost in the woods, nor was it a deer strayed from its path. This was something larger, something sinister. The realization coiled in my stomach, an unwelcome intruder in my gut. I pressed my ear against the cold glass straining to hear to make sense of this trespasser the noise was closer now too close it had crossed into my property breaking that unspoken divide between man's dwelling and the wilderness that rustling was not just in my yard it was inside my mind stirring a primal instinct i didn't know i had my arm raised elbow resting on the windowsill flashlight pointing outwards like the barrel of a gun ready to shoot light instead of bullets. The noises outside had become louder, more disturbingly human, and the urge to shine a light on the fear was strong, almost unbearable. But there was also the fear of what the light might reveal. The button on the flashlight felt cold, ready. It was loaded with power, and with the flick of my thumb it could unleash a beam of clarity, or perhaps a beam of terror. My heart pounded in my chest, echoing in the silence of the room, like the beating drums of an ancient ritual. Outside the unknown lurked, rustling the peace of my world, threatening to bring my nightmares into the waking realm. The dark veil of the night was about to be pierced by the blade of my flashlight, ready to shed light on the unseen beast. Yet as I stood there, my finger teetering on the edge of illumination, I had to wonder if I was ready to confront what lay hidden in the shadows. My thumb, heavy with trepidation, Clicked the flashlight on. It was a moment suspended in time, a breath held in anticipation. The beam cut through the darkness, a razor sharp sword slicing through the black velvet of the night. Beyond the window, beyond the twisted pickets of the fence and the gnarled briars, my humble homestead was rendered strange by the unexpected spotlight. An eerie tableau of shadows sprang to life, exaggerating the night's cryptic cloak. For a moment there was only silence. The world held its breath alongside mine. Then something broke the trance, something far more unsettling than the pervasive darkness ever was. Two orbs stared back at me, milky and round, reflecting the beam of my flashlight like a pair of spectral moons lodged in the night. They hovered in the air, unblinking and unwavering, attached to a form that remained hidden, swathed in the relentless darkness. The sight struck me like a winter gust, biting and unapologetic, turning my blood to icy rivulets. Despite the shaking of my hand, the beam of light remained steady, locked in a macabre dance with the monstrous gaze. Those eyes, they were devoid of life, yet held an uncanny intelligence, an awareness that churned my stomach and prickled my skin. In them, I saw something ancient and primal, something that didn't belong in the sphere of my familiar world, but intruded nonetheless. Neither I nor the creature moved. We were two statues frozen in an ethereal tableau, a man and an enigma locked in a battle of stares. The tension tightened around us like a noose. The longer the silence persisted, the heavier it became, an echo of unspoken fear and curiosity. The passing of time felt meaningless, warped in the face of this surreal encounter. Was it seconds, minutes, or had hours passed us by in this silent standoff? I couldn't tell. Each tick of the clock was swallowed by the unblinking gaze of those lifeless, hungry eyes. The world outside my window was transformed by that beam of light, from a space of innocent darkness to a theater of horror. And then, abruptly, the stage went dark. The flashlight's beam dwindled, flickered, and then finally extinguished, succumbing to the sudden death of its batteries. The flashlight slipped from my fingers, thudding onto the wooden floor, echoing my shocked realization. I was plunged into darkness, the protective veil of light ripped away, leaving me starkly vulnerable. The silence of the room was punctuated by the frantic thumping of my heart, deafening in the sudden void of illumination. Outside the eyes and the creature they belonged to were hidden once again, reclaimed by the forgiving darkness. But the memory remained, seared into my mind, a haunting specter in the quiet of the night. The line between my world and the unknown had been blurred, and in its wake was a terror that consumed the darkness whole. The once benign night was now tainted with an unfathomable dread, a nightmare unfolding beyond the windowpane. In the immediate aftermath of the encounter, I was consumed by a frantic urgency. The rustling from outside had resumed, a harsh reminder that my uninvited guest was still out there, lurking in the darkness. Every instinct screamed at me to act. To reclaim the advantage the flashlight had offered, and so I scrambled through the pitch-black room, seeking solace in the mundane task of replacing the batteries. I fumbled with the drawer in the bedside table, hands shaking, fingers clumsy in their haste. The metallic taste of fear was a bitter undercurrent on my tongue as I rummaged through the contents. I cursed my disorganization, my lack of preparedness, a stinging rebuke for my complacency. The rustling sound became louder closer an auditory predator stalking my nerves the line between inside and outside seemed to blur as though the creature's presence could penetrate the thin barriers of my cottage it was as if the shadows themselves were alive shifting and whispering tales of ancient horrors of monstrosities that lurked just beyond the grasp of the light at last my fingers closed around the familiar cylindrical shape of batteries with a sigh of relief that sounded more like a whimper i replaced the dead ones in my flashlight the metallic clink echoing through the room like a warrior's rallying cry. Then, armed once again with my beacon of light, I pointed the flashlight at the window, my heartbeat sinking with the rhythm of my trembling fingers. The beam cut across the room, landing on the glass pane that separated me from the inscrutable horror outside. I half expected to see the eyes again, staring back at me with their eerie glow, but instead, I was met with an abyss of emptiness. A sweep of the flashlight across the tree-line yielded nothing but the ordinary night landscape. The eyes were gone. The creature, too, had retreated, leaving behind only the echoes of its presence. The normalcy that returned to my backyard was almost jarring, a stark contrast to the surreal episode I had just lived through. My mind reeled, struggling to reconcile the terrifying reality of those eyes with the quiet serenity of my garden now. I was left grappling with an unknown terror that had made a chilling debut and then exited the stage, leaving no trace behind. But traces are not always physical. Some are left behind on the canvas of the mind, becoming part of the scenery of our thoughts. The image of those dead, hungry eyes was etched deep within my consciousness, haunting me long after the creature had disappeared. That night, the darkness grew, wrapping my cottage and my mind in its inky shroud. I lay awake, staring at the ceiling, the tranquility of sleep snatched away by the echo of those eyes. For every time I closed my eyes, I saw them, unblinking, unfeeling, and unforgettable. I was a prisoner in my own home, shackled by a fear that sprang from an unseen terror. The once comforting silence of the night was now a specter, its quiet whispers echoing the rustling leaves and the hungry gaze of my uninvited guest. The days that followed were a slow, maddening crawl, Each night I would lie in bed, my mind echoing with the spectral gaze of the unknown creature. The beast had made its retreat, but those eyes, those hungry, lifeless eyes, were everywhere. They were the plague and I, the unwilling host. I was imprisoned within the walls of my own mind, a captive audience to a ceaseless horror show. My once serene haven, nestled in the embrace of the red pines, had morphed into a fortress of dread. I found no comfort in the rustle of the leaves or the sighing wind each sound was a ghastly reminder of the eyes in the dark the unseen entity that had dared to trespass into my sanctuary forever marring its peace every shadow seemed pregnant with lurking horrors every rustle a phantom of those heavy strides the very air around the cottage was tainted carrying whispers of the terror that had passed i was living in a stephen king novel besieged by a monster that had revealed only a fraction of its horror. Daylight brought no reprieve. The sun's rays felt mocking, illuminating a world that had been corrupted by the unseen beast. Even the birds seemed to have changed their tunes, their melodies sounding more like dirges. Every mundane detail, every benign moment was a ticking bomb of anxiety, waiting to explode into a cacophony of fear. Nights, once my solace, now stretched out like dark, timeless chasms sleep was a distant memory a sweet oblivion that was ruthlessly snatched away by the eyes they would haunt my dreams when i managed a moment's respite unblinking orbs in the black void they were devoid of life yet held a monstrous hunger that turned my dreams into nightmares a relentless chase through a forest of dread i felt the creature's eyes on me even when i didn't see them they lived in my reflection stared back at me from every corner turning the cottage into a house of mirrors each reflecting my own terror-stricken face. I could see them in the darkest corners of my home, lurking in the silence of the night, projecting their ghostly glare onto the canvas of my world. The boundary between reality and my fear-blurred perception was slowly eroding. My mind was a battlefield, with sanity and terror grappling for control. The eyes weren't just in the woods anymore. They were inside my head, gnawing at my consciousness, making me question every shadow, every sound, every waking moment. I was no longer living in my cottage. I was trapped within the hollow, echoing chambers of my own mind, terrorized by an unseen horror that had staked its claim on my sanity. My last shred of rationality told me that I had to escape, to flee this home-turned prison. But where could I go? Those eyes were not just in the woods anymore. They were in me, part of me, a horrifying stain on my existence. In the end, It didn't matter whether the creature in the woods was real or just a figment of my fear-addled mind. It had achieved its purpose. The once-familiar contours of my world had been altered, distorted by the lens of fear. The fear of the unseen had left me as hollow and lifeless as the eyes that haunted me, a terrifying monument to the terror that had intruded upon my world. In my fight against the unseen beast, I had become the embodiment of my own horror story. You'd be hard-pressed to find a profession with more solitude than that of a national park ranger. I've known that quiet all my life. It's like an old friend to me. I was hired on just shy of 20 years ago, when there were no traffic jams in Yellowstone or sightings of black bears in your backyards. I remember those days with my job description reading something like, ensure the preservation of nature's balance. It's a different world out here now. The wilderness isn't the untouched sanctuary it used to be you'd reckon my years of service have made me immune to the changes. In reality, it's made me more sensitive to every shift, every oddity. I've lived the life of a park ranger under different managers, through years of wildfires and snowy winters, been rotated through every campsite in the park, and seen everything from the grandeur of sunrise over the mountains to the eeriness of foggy mornings. My job, despite the constant evolution, has always been to protect and serve the natural world, and its temporary human residence. Life's tranquil out here most times. Your mind finds peace in the rhythmic rustling of leaves, the orchestrated symphony of the wilderness, or the raw, unfiltered sight of nature in all its grandeur. But it isn't always about tranquil brooks and chattering critters. We've got our fair share of trouble, like irresponsible campers and wildlife threats. But nothing, and I mean nothing, ever prepared me for the horror that awaited me one ordinary morning. It was a gruesome scene that forever changed the tranquility of my work, of my home. Before we go any further, I need to tell you why I'm sharing this. It ain't for pity or to scare you off your next camping trip. I'm telling this story because it's high time people knew what they're stepping into, knew that our world out here is changing in ways that are far from natural. To think, it all started with a routine campsite check. We'd been gearing up for the season. Preparing the park for our annual influx of eager campers, bird watchers, and families keen on making memories around the campfire. There's a rotation to these campsites, you see, for the park's safety and nature's balance. Well, I was on a routine check that day, earmarked to survey the sites after the harsh winter, ensure they were ready for summer. The morning air was crisp, filled with the scent of pine and damp earth. The sun was gradually peeking through the foliage casting long, serene shadows that danced with the breeze. It was supposed to be just another day in paradise, just another tick mark on my ranger duties. But what I found at that unauthorized camp, it was a scene ripped straight from a nightmare, so horrendous it made the very wilderness around me feel alien, hostile. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's a tale for the next chapter. For now, just know this. My peaceful ranger life was about to be shattered by a horror that lurked where no one expected. To understand what happened that day, you need to appreciate the intimacy I share with these woods. Every rustling leaf, every bird song, every subtle shift in the wind, it's all a part of my personal symphony, a symphony I've conducted for the better part of two decades. To me, these woods are more than just a landscape. They're a living, breathing entity with a heartbeat as vibrant and steady as my own but when I stumbled upon that unauthorized campsite, the heartbeat of the forest fell silent. The birds didn't sing, the leaves didn't rustle, even the wind seemed to hold its breath. The only sound was my own heart, pounding in my chest like the drum of a frightened war party. The first thing I noticed was the smell, a rank odor, like rotting meat left out in the sun. I've come across my share of carrion in the wild, the remnants of a predator's feast, or an animal that didn't survive the winter, but this was different. It was a stench that hit you like a punch to the gut, raw and visceral, enough to make a grown man gag. And I did. Through the nausea I made out the source of the stench. A tent, collapsed and torn to shreds, and around it a chaos of shredded belongings. A camping trip turned disaster, it seemed. But where were the campers? I called out, hoping against hope for an answer. But my words died in the silence. I ventured further into the chaos, every step a battle against the bile rising in my throat. That's when I saw it. The blood, dried and blackened, splattered across the campsite like a deranged artist's painting. The sight of it made my blood run cold. There wasn't a sign of any bodies, but the amount of blood suggested a grim fate for the campers. The reality of it hit me like a sucker punch, making my head spin. I fell to my knees, the taste of bile burning in my throat. I've dealt with deaths in the park before. Accidents, medical emergencies. They're unfortunate, but they happen. This was something else, something I'd never seen or even imagined. A massacre, it seemed, had unfolded in the place I'd called home. And the most disturbing part? There were no footprints, no tire tracks, nothing to suggest that the campers had been attacked by a human assailant. Instead... There were large, deep claw marks etched in the earth around the site, claw marks that matched no animal known to roam these parts. As I took in the grisly scene, a feeling of dread settled in my bones. Something was out there in my woods, something deadly and unknown, and I was the only line of defense between it and the thousands of park visitors who would soon be flooding in for the summer. I stumbled back to my ranger vehicle, my legs feeling like lead. The shock was setting in and my mind was spinning with questions. What had happened here? Who or what had done this? And most importantly, how could I stop it from happening again? As the chilling wind swept through the forest, I made a silent vow. Whatever was out there, I would find it and stop it. After all, I'm a ranger, and these are my woods. Most people see only the beauty of the wilderness. They're drawn in by the calls of birds echoing in the trees, the tranquil hum of a river, or the subtle rustle of leaves dancing in the wind. But I've spent enough time in these woods to know they hold more than just beauty. They hold secrets and they hold danger, and they were holding on to something deadly. The ride back to the ranger station was a blur. My mind was haunted by the horror I had discovered, and my body felt as though it was moving through a thick, suffocating fog. A million thoughts ricocheted inside my head, none of them clear, none of them helpful. But as I neared the station, my vision cleared. I was going to have to share this nightmare. I reached for my radio, my hand trembling slightly, and called in the incident to the station. They were to send backup and local law enforcement. By the time I arrived back at the station, a wave of exhaustion washed over me. I trudged into my office, collapsing into the chair at my desk. I tried to recount the events to myself, to make sense of the grisly scene. The attack didn't make sense. What kind of creature could, or would, do something like that? A knock on the door pulled me from my thoughts. Sheriff Hanks stepped into the room, his usual friendly smile replaced with a grim line. His eyes held a mixture of concern and determination. He was a good man, Sheriff Hanks, steady and dependable, but I could see that this situation had shaken him too. Joe, he started, using the informal nickname we'd adopted over the years. I've seen the photos... It's bad, real bad. He leaned against the door frame, his brow furrowed in deep thought. Could be a bear or a mountain lion, he suggested. I wanted to believe him. I wanted to think that this was just nature taking its course, but I knew better. The claw marks, the sheer force of the attack. It didn't match any animal I knew. I shook my head. No, Ed, this wasn't a bear. This wasn't a mountain lion. I paused, swallowing the lump in my throat. This was something else. The room fell silent. I could see the sheriff's mind working, considering the possibility. Then he nodded. Alright, we'll start there. Let's figure out what we're dealing with. As he left the room, I felt a strange sense of relief. Yes, there was a monstrous mystery lurking in my park, but I wasn't alone in this fight. With the sheriff on board and the rest of the park staff alerted, we were a team and we were going to find whatever it was that was terrorizing my wilderness. For the rest of the day, I found myself consumed by the task at hand. There were calls to be made, reports to be filed, trails to be closed. But as night fell and the tasks wound down, I was left alone with my thoughts once again. Alone, but determined. I was going to protect my park, my wilderness, and I was going to catch a monster. Some days the wild has a way of wrapping itself around you like a comforting blanket. The rustling leaves, the whistling wind, the chirping birds. It's like a symphony that lulls you into a state of tranquility. But not that day. That day the wilderness seemed menacing. Every whisper of the trees felt like a warning. I got to the crime scene with a heavy heart, my nerves buzzing with dread. It was eerily silent when I arrived the usual cacophony of nature drowned out by an ominous stillness. And there, right at the edge of the clearing, I found it. The markings. The hunter's mark. A deep chill ran down my spine as I surveyed the markings etched into the bark of a towering pine. It was an eerie symbol, a series of intersecting lines and circles that made no sense to me, but its unfamiliarity didn't make it any less daunting. Toby joined me, arriving just as the last rays of sunlight were beginning to disappear. I watched as his face fell at the sight of the markings, his usual jovial demeanor replaced with a grim seriousness. "'Never seen anything like it, Joe,' he murmured, his brow furrowed in concern. We fell into a tense silence, both of us lost in our own thoughts. I was pondering over the markings, trying to make sense of it all. But the more I tried, the more it eluded me. Was it a code, a message, or just a sick signature left behind by a monstrous predator?' After a while, Toby broke the silence. We need to call in some experts, Joe. This is beyond us. I nodded, agreeing with him. We were rangers, protectors of the wilderness, not crime scene investigators or monster hunters. As the sun finally disappeared, plunging the clearing into darkness, a sense of unease settled over me. I cast one last look at the markings, etched deep and deliberate in the tree, and shivered. It felt like a declaration of dominance, A clear message that we were not the hunters here, but the hunted. Back at the ranger station, I found myself restless. There was a gnawing fear deep in my gut, a feeling of impending doom that I couldn't shake. I paced the floor, pored over maps, scanned through old reports, but nothing helped. The park was my home, a place I knew better than anywhere else, and something had invaded it. The call to the experts was made. A team of anthropologists, a few crime scene investigators, and even a big cat specialist were en route. We needed all the help we could get. I didn't know what we were up against, but I was determined to protect my home. I wouldn't let this beast take any more lives. As I finally settled into bed, exhaustion overtaking me, I couldn't help but feel a strange sense of anticipation. The next day was going to bring answers. It had to. I wasn't just a ranger anymore, I was a hunter, and I was on the trail of a beast, I closed my eyes, the hunter's mark etched into my mind, and drifted into a restless sleep, ready to face whatever tomorrow would bring. Dawn broke with a leaden sky, pregnant with the threat of a storm. The team arrived in hushed silence, their grim expressions echoing the mood of the wilderness. Introductions were made, coffee was poured, and soon we were all huddled around a makeshift table, examining the hunter's mark. Dr. Harper, the anthropologist, was the first to break the silence. It's not Native American, she declared, her finger tracing the pattern etched into a plaster cast. Nor does it align with any other indigenous cultures I'm aware of. It's unique. Her words sent a ripple of unease through the room. Unique meant unknown, and unknown meant danger. We were all thinking it, but no one dared to say it out loud. The predator was unlike anything we had faced before. We took turns examining the plaster cast, The crime scene investigator, a wiry man named Mitchell, pointed out the precision of the mark, the meticulous care taken to carve it. It was unsettling, to say the least. Then it was the big cat specialist, a stout woman named Dr. Carter's turn. After a long, silent examination, she let out a low whistle. "'It's not a cougar,' she said. "'It's something bigger, stronger, and smarter.' Her words sent a chill down my spine, bigger, stronger, smarter. Each word was like a nail being hammered into my fear. I looked at Toby, his face mirroring my own apprehension, but there was something else in his eyes, determination. It was a sentiment I echoed. We spent the rest of the day combing through the area, searching for more signs, more clues. The predator had left nothing else behind, but it was during these hours of desperate searching that I noticed something, something the others hadn't, the shadows. As I moved through the trees, the ominous quiet broken only by the occasional chatter of the investigators, I observed the long, looming shadows cast by the trees. They looked off. They didn't match the shape of the trees, the angle of the sun. It was as if they were hiding something. I mentioned this to Toby, and he gave me a quizzical look. But he humored me, and we spent the next hour examining the shadows. And then we saw it, in the shadow of a gnarled old oak, almost imperceptible unless you knew what to look for was a faint imprint the hunter's mark the realization hit me like a punch to the gut the predator was not only marking its territory but also hiding its marks in plain sight this was no ordinary beast it was intelligent cunning i felt a shiver of apprehension creep up my spine what kind of creature were we dealing with as the day drew to a close the storm finally broke the skies opening up to let loose a torrent of rain. We took shelter in the ranger station, our minds buzzing with new revelations. The day had brought us answers, yes, but also more questions. As I watched the rain batter the wilderness outside, the secret of the shadows playing on my mind, I knew our hunt had only just begun, and we were a long way from catching our prey. The rain didn't let up for two days straight. It drummed on the roof of the ranger station a relentless tattoo that echoed the unease in our hearts. Inside, we pored over maps, charts, and research documents, but the dread was an uninvited guest that refused to leave. After a brief discussion, it was decided that Dr. Harper and I would venture further into the wilderness, try to locate another marked tree. We geared up in silence, the storm outside a grim soundtrack to our thoughts. The forest was transformed by the rain, The once dry paths were now muddy tracks that sucked at our boots. The leaves glistened wetly, their verdant green a sharp contrast to the steel gray of the storm. But despite the downpour, an eerie silence hung over the wilderness. It was as if nature itself was holding its breath. Dr. Harper and I trudged through the rain-soaked wilderness. Her usually chatty demeanor was replaced by a grim determination. She was here to find answers, to uncover the secrets hidden in these woods, and she would not be deterred by a little rain or the ever-present sense of danger. It was mid-afternoon when we found it, a tree, its bark scarred with the same mark. It was hidden in the shadow, just like before. We examined the tree, took pictures, cast a mold, but the find brought us little joy. If anything, it deepened the pit in our stomachs. The marks were fresh, meaning the predator was still nearby, still hunting. As we made our way back to the station, The forest seemed to close in around us. Every rustle of leaves, every creak of a branch, made us jump. Our senses were on high alert, our nerves stretched thin. I felt a pang of regret for dragging Dr. Harper into this, but she showed no signs of fear. Instead she trudged on, her eyes scanning the wilderness with a resolve that made me admire her even more. Back at the station, we shared our findings with the team. The atmosphere was tense the air heavy with the weight of our discovery. The predator was still out there, marking trees, lurking in the shadows, but the question still remained. What was it? That night sleep eluded me. I lay awake listening to the rain pattering against the window, lost in thought. I couldn't shake the image of the marked tree, the realization of the creature's intelligence. A shiver ran down my spine. This was not a hunt. This was a game. And we were not the hunters. We were the hunted. As dawn broke, the rain finally let up, leaving behind a cleansed world. But the storm inside us remained. We were heading into uncharted territory, chasing an unknown predator. The danger was real, the stakes higher than ever. As I prepared for another day of investigations, I couldn't help but feel a sense of foreboding. I had faced many challenges in my career, but this was something else. But as I stepped outside, into the wet wilderness, I knew one thing for sure. We were in the fray, and there was no turning back. The sun was barely up when I found myself back at the edge of the forest. There was a chill in the air, the aftermath of the storm, making each breath feel like a gulp of ice water. I peered into the dense greenery, the trees standing tall and silent, their secrets hidden within their depths. I felt a hand on my shoulder and turned to find Dr. Harper. Her face was pale, but her eyes held a determined glint, There was no need for words we both knew what lay ahead with a nod we plunged into the heart of the wilderness the forest was alive with the sounds of dawn birds chirped overhead a gentle breeze rustled the leaves and in the distance a river flowed with a soft constant murmur it would have been a scene of idyllic tranquility if it weren't for the undercurrent of dread that ran through our veins we had been trekking for hours when it happened A low growl, a chilling sound that seemed to vibrate through the very air. It sent shivers down our spines, froze us in our tracks. We scanned the surrounding woods, but saw nothing. The predator remained hidden, its presence felt, but not seen. Without a word, we quickened our pace, our eyes darting in every direction, ears pricked for the slightest sound. Then, from the corner of my eye, I saw it, a shadow, moving with an eerie grace. It was far larger than any animal I had ever seen, a shapeless mass of darkness that seemed to absorb the light around it. Suddenly the shadow lunged. Dr. Harper cried out, but before I could react, the shadow was upon us. There was a blur of movement, a flash of sharp teeth, and then I was flying through the air, the world spinning around me. I hit the ground hard, pain shooting up my side. I tried to move, to reach for my sidearm, but my body refused to respond. I could only watch in horror as the shadow descended upon Dr. Harper, but instead of the bloodbath I expected, there was only silence. I blinked, trying to clear my vision. The shadow was still there, but it was no longer attacking. It was standing still, staring down at Dr. Harper with an intelligence that sent chills down my spine. Then, as quickly as it had appeared, the shadow was gone, disappearing back into the darkness from which it had emerged." The forest fell silent once more, leaving behind only the echoes of our pounding hearts and the chilling memory of our encounter with the beast. As I lay there, staring up at the canopy of trees, I knew our lives would never be the same again. We had come face to face with the predator, the beast of the woods, and we had survived. But the terror that clawed at my chest told me that this was far from over. The beast had revealed itself, and now it knew us. It knew our scent, our fear, and it was waiting, lurking in the shadows, ready to strike again. As the cold realization set in, one thought echoed through my mind. The hunt had only just begun.